0: Get yours in Coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.
2: You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life
3: Just a heads up, this episode contains adult language and discussion of suicide, so take care while listening. When I first imagined Ruby hopping trains, my idea of it was romantic. She'd be sitting with her back resting at the edge of an open boxcar door. Open fields rushing by her, one leg extended, smoking a cigarette. I knew that trains were dangerous, but this was the image I clung to. It helped me get to sleep at night. I also recognized that if I was going to understand what she was up against, I had to see a train yard myself. That's how I ended up in Roseville, one of the biggest yards on the West Coast, to see what my daughter would face if she was running through the train yard, trying to hop a train. Sometimes,
0: you know, a train goes by and it's squealing and you hear all these sounds of like, you know, kachak, kachak, the clackety-clack noises and stuff. But then other times, in the middle of the night, a car just sails by you. You didn't hear anything, not even a whisper. It just comes out of the fog and just you're like, Oh, God.
3: So, but, but, the, but the kids who travel don't know this, and they could be running between long corridors of trains. Absolutely, yeah. Long... Have you seen them do that? Yes, I've, I've seen all kinds of people do that. I'd heard Ruby might have come through Roseville, a railroad hub with tracks that could take her over the Sierras to the Midwest or north to Canada. But first she'd have to make her way through the train yard, across the tracks and between the freight cars.
0: You're in the danger zone. It's basically like running across the tarmac at LAX. If I were to try to walk across all these tracks ahead of me, each one of them is easily able to have like a 15,000-ton train 60, 70, 80 miles an hour.
3: (laughs) Although I didn't know much about trains the day Ruby left, I was learning as much as I could as fast as I could. What I could learn on the web would only take me so far. Like I was finding out lots of people died in the train yard every year. But how did that happen?
0: If I'm running across like in front of a plane that's landing, um, you know, most people would think that would be crazy. That would be like something you do like on an insane daredevil bet. No one compares that to running in front of a train,
3: which could be going almost the same speed. I came to Roseville to find out what Ruby could face in the yard, but it turned out that this dusty little town had some surprises for me. Sure, I didn't think much about trains before Ruby left, but when her friends talked about riding, or I imagined Ruby in that boxcar, I felt the draw. That was my naive idea about how romantic a solo journey could be. But in Roseville, I learned the people who ride the rails and the people who work in the yard experience something more visceral. Inside the yard, they go up against raw power every day, and it changes how they see the world. The train yard is where all of this begins the gateway to the city of the rails.
2: the sad, the I'm going
3: for hobos, the train yard is like the subway platform, the bus stop. They don't plan to spend a ton of time there, but they do, because they usually don't know when their train is gonna leave. So Roseville, one of the biggest yards in the West, was a good place to start to understand the situation Ruby faced when she tried to hop a train. With up to 50 or 60 trains a day coming through Roseville, there was a lot in motion, a lot of things could go wrong. I needed someone to guide me through this world, because while it was big, noisy, and obvious, it was also mysterious to outsiders. Beyond that chaos, there was more than you could see at a glance. I wanted to find the person who could show me that. So I started calling around, trying to find a yard worker or a train conductor, someone who worked on the ground, who could walk me through life in the yard. Finally, on my 10th call, a guy told me he knew someone who could talk my ear off. 1864, basically, just because they needed to... That's my kind of guy.
0: My name is Robert Hudson. I'm a former switchman and brakeman and conductor for the Union Pacific Railroad.
3: I told Robert I wanted to know what my daughter faced in the yard. So on a Wednesday afternoon, he picked me up to drive me around Roseville. He had a bunch of spots he wanted to show me that would give me a full view of the yard. (laughs) Roseville's
0: one of the weirdest towns that you see around um, California because...
3: Robert is ready faced with the, thick sandy-brown uh, hair and blue eyes that brighten when he talks about the train yard. And boy, again, can yeah, he yeah. talk! It's got five sections. <laughs>
0: and there's a kind of a. TV if you drive
3: through Roseville, it looks like any other California, California mountain town, so except for the fact that you can see and hear the trains down. all the time. You'd never suspect it was part of the international economy, a hub where goods shipped from Asia pass through on their way to places all around the U.S. On our way around the yard, Robert showed me how much the country owes it's to little towns place like place this.
0: Where, uh, we're actually right next to the old telegraphy office, which I don't think a lot of people realize that if you ever heard, heard of Sprint, um, Sprint is a Southern Pacific internal network telephone. <laughs> it is it? The, yep. It was originally started as the railroad telephones before they had radios.
3: In the 1870s, the Southern Pacific Railroad laid telegraph lines along its train tracks, Over the next hundred years, those lines became fiber optic cables. And in 1972, the Southern Pacific began to sell its communication network as a service to private customers, which later became Sprint Mobile, Southern Pacific Railroad Internal Network Telephony. All these facts about the rails that came rattling out of Robert made me go, huh? Really?
0: People have no idea how much the railroad affects in their lives. You know, like, it reaches its fingers into almost everything. We get all these different cities that sprung up just like Roseville. It, you know, came out of nowhere because it was just a place where two railroads crossed.
3: With Robert as my guide, this place was coming alive to me. There was order in this chaos. It wasn't just a place where two rail tracks crossed. It was right in the center of the economy. As we approach the center of the yard, Robert pulls over.
0: And this is, um right here is like the, the side of the yard, which is the receiving yard that normally picks up a whole bunch of uh, cars from... Um
3: We're looking at the main part of the yard, about 50 tracks wide, with pieces of trains scattered around, a few train cars linked together standing here or there on different tracks, not going anywhere. Robert points to a long cut of cars stacked high with shrink-wrapped packages.
0: And then... There's a whole bunch of of cars that have uh, lumber on them from, you know, up in uh, Oregon and Washington. And so those are, uh, a lot of those are actually probably headed down to the Bay Area to get on ships and to go to China because our wood is actually going mostly to China right now.
3: I looked it up. The United States is a number one exporter of wood to China, nearly a billion tons of wood a year. And each one of those cars carried 200,000 pounds of lumber, enough to build six houses per car. The lumber ships out to China through the port of Oakland, but the same freight trains can carry anything— chicken feed, meat, even Air Jordans. Some cars hold finished goods destined for Walmart and Amazon warehouses. And along the way, a lot of those trains pass through Roseville. It's one of America's main gateways for shipping. Robert told me what happens when the train enters the yard.
0: So it comes in as one train, shuffles up, like, into different pieces, and then it goes out the other end, and it's now, like, a new train. It's only if it actually has to get shuffled that it goes in the yard in the first place, otherwise it would just go right past the yard. But if it's, you know, if it has to get shuffled then it comes in on the west side, say, and then they put it back together and give it a new engine and it takes off to the east side.
3: This is the same basic operation that sent goods around America since we started shipping by rail in the early 1800s. Trains enter the yard carrying one set of cars and leave with another. And if you're paying attention, they can tell you a lot. So, the fun thing about the railroad is that because it's behind the scenes,
0: uh, you have the sense of, like, every industry. I mean, there's a there's a finger on the pulse of, like, the nation that we have that a lot of people don't. So the railroad is very much, like, um, driven by the whole economy. So about a third of all of the goods in the entire country that are sold in every store go through the Port of Oakland or
3: Port of L.A. So. Uh, We move all that stuff. (laughs) It's all us. Those are just two ports, and they receive a third of the goods that are then shipped across America. And Robert said he knew when the economy was getting shaky just by watching the traffic in the yard. Because I could tell like back in 2008, for example,
0: I knew that the
3: economy wasn't doing
0: well. You did? For sure, you know, How maybe like you know? a year in advance. I mean, because there was less and less railroad cars. I mean, I was I was working overtime, and then all of a sudden I was barely working seven hours a day and getting paid for eight.
3: <laughs> and this is before the actual crash?
0: Yeah, before the crash by at, at least a good eight months or something.
3: Roseville is more than it appears this dusty old yard is an international crossroads with hundreds of thousands of tons of goods passing through. Sure didn't look that way. So we ignore the train yards, mostly, and the trains are indifferent to us. They're too big, too busy to react to a little human or two who might be standing in the way. And taking advantage of that are thousands of hobos lurking in the empty cars, hoping that, in all of this slamming together and breaking apart, They could slip between the shadows quickly, leap over the gaps quietly, to get where they're going unscathed. From my vantage point at the end of the yard, the odds of them making it didn't look good. Robert was taking me to an even scarier place, the place where all the noise falls away. The hump is
0: probably the most dangerous place in the yard.
3: Before I met up with Robert in Roseville, I went online trying to figure out where I should go next to find Ruby. I found maps of train routes and imagined the view from a train headed over the Rockies, or alongside the Hudson in the fall. But I also wanted some basic facts. There are seven railroads with big freight yards like Roseville stashed around the country. These places where the trains come together and break apart are where hobos switch from one train to another heading to where they want to go. Leaping between trains is a dangerous move. About 500 people a year die on railroad property, more than one a day. To help me understand how these people died, Robert took me across the yard to see the hump.
0: So we'll see if there's some spot around.
3: So where exactly are we? I'm a little confused. Ah,
0: yes, I was gonna say, this is a spot where uh, we're on the quieter side
3: of like the rail yard. Robert points to the spot he wanted to show me, maybe 100 feet from where we're standing.
0: It's like trains would be coming from the left of me and going to the right of me, and the right after you, know, you pass the, the hump. Then it goes into the bowl to the, to the right of me. It's definitely a, like a substantial hill. I think the mound is probably 20 feet, but then below that, there's a, a bowl that actually goes down into the ground and is lower than the ground level. So it might drop 25 feet.
3: I watch as one by one, huge freight cars glide across the track, splayed out on the other side of the hump, going maybe five miles an hour. They appear to operate on their own power.
0: The engine's pushing it up that hill, and then they're just rolling off into that into that bowl uh, by gravity.
3: It's eerie. The train cars move silently, swiftly. Unless you knew to look for them, you'd never see them coming. Would Ruby see them coming? And riders weren't the only ones who were at risk on the hump. The people who worked there were, too. J.P. Wright started his life in the yard working on top of the hump, and he knew how dangerous that work could be. How big
5: is the yard that you started at? Which one was it? Oh gosh, it was Osborne Yards in in Louisville, Kentucky. I I can't remember how many acres it was. The hump is still hand
3: operated. As cars come over the hill, there's a human being there separating the cars by hand. J.P. Wright used to be one of those people working the hump, pulling the pins to separate the cars at the knuckle before they rolled onto the tracks. As simple as it sounds, the job can be grueling.
5: So you you reach in maybe like half an arm length, and you pull this thing that lifts the pin up in between the two knuckles. So you're lifting 10 to 12 pounds with one arm all night, over and over and over and over again.
3: The cut of the train is coming over the hump, and you're reaching your hand in there to pull this lever.
5: Yeah, that allows the car to separate by gravity when it goes over the hump.
3: As the train keeps rolling new cars up to the hump, a pin puller has to be there at the ready. And some trains are miles
5: long. The plan was to get 600 cars a night on a shift. So there's two people doing it. Many nights I would walk 10, 12, 15 miles a night on top of the hill.
6: Mm -hmm.
5: I lost 40 pounds the first year I did it.
3: It took strength, quick reflexes and excellent hand-eye coordination. And if you made a mistake, It was one you'd never forget. Robert Hudson told me pin pullers had a reputation.
0: You'd know the pin pullers by the fact that they would lose fingers almost inevitably. So there'd be, you know, two or three fingers on these guys, and they (laughs) grab the like pin out, and they'd separate the cars that way. But as you can imagine, like that was very dangerous.
3: J P told me about one close call he had.
5: I was reading the cars on the track next to me, and I accidentally moved over a little bit too far to the next track, and a car comes flying by. And I felt the wind of of it on my shoulder and on my head. So I was that close. And then there it went. And I was like, fuck, I never heard it coming.
3: But JP knew the hazards. And being a pinpuller was just an entry point to something greater. He had his sights set on the best job in the yard, being an engineer who can pull down $100,000 a year with just a high school education. Besides the money, driving the train was a huge part of the appeal. As dangerous as they are, trains show you hidden places in the world.
5: As for testosterone purposes, there was nothing better than getting up on the train on a really nice night. You got two really good locomotives. So you're going to go 60 miles an hour and you crack open the windows. It's nice outside. You crack that throttle and off you go through the back roads of Kentucky all the way through to Tennessee. I mean, it, it, there, there's an absolute allure to the whole thing. Of course, it's almost mm-hmm. like you're in the wild, wild West riding your big, you know, 4,000 horses when you are participating in how you feel that you are really building the the country. You're, you're out there doing something that has a long tradition. You're in one of the oldest unions in the United States. There's all this brotherhood talk and, it's easily to get wrapped up into this whole fucking cowboy movie that you're a part of every night.
3: It isn't just the thrill that attracts rail workers. It's knowing that you're part of something bigger.
5: Pretty much anything that anybody has on their body or in their home or anything is delivered somehow on a train. So it's a very important part of our economy, and we're told that. You know, as part of the company jargon. But we also know that. Hey, we're yeah, okay.
3: proud. It's a tradition you're of proud Of course, it's a tradition. yeah. It's railroading important. is a great
5: tradition in this country.
3: The tradition JP is so proud of still uses technology that hasn't been improved upon for more than a century. But these simple technologies, like the hump, were the high tech of their time. They changed the world just like the internet or smartphones have shaped our world today. These trains connected America, tying individual cities together into a country. They created a network. Historian Richard White told me how the railroads really were the internet of their day.
2: Places that have been isolated from each other, they might be 30 miles apart, but nobody would ever see each other because it was too hard to go down muddy roads to do it. With the rails, those people would become neighbors. And it's not just 30 miles away, but hundreds of miles away. Places that would have been utterly strange would now become familiar. That's essentially the same thing the Silicon Valley promised in the late 20th, early 21st century. The, the argument was simply information could travel so quickly, people would be able to see each other, talk to each other, hear each other, without filters in between them, that in fact this kind of neighborly listening community would arise um, from the technology itself.
3: The railroads brought people together, just like the Internet did, connecting people in ways that were previously impossible. And just like with the Internet there was a lot of commentary and criticism about the railroads. Phil Sexton, a local railroad historian in Roseville, told me that when trains began to spread in the early 1800s, they had their own version of the Y2K panic.
6: There were actually scientists in Europe who postulated that by moving as fast as 30 miles an hour, you would be irrevocably damaged due to the G-forces.
3: But damn the warnings. Americans wanted to be on the move. Being able to travel quickly and freely changed the U.S. from a farming country to an industrial one, starting with the big growth of the cities. The people who took to the rails in the 1880s had something in common with those who are on the rails today. They just had a go.
6: Some people just have itchy feet. If you remember the end of Huck Finn, he talks about lighting out for the territory ahead of the rest because it's just too civilized where he is. And a lot of people felt that way, and a lot of people wanted farmland, or they just wanted what they felt was more freedom and kind of breathing space.
3: With trains, remote places whose journeys were once too treacherous or too far were now within reach. That meant that people who wanted to go could go further and much more easily. All those dreamers and scoundrels who wanted a new life could board a train to California, which had a geography much different from the East.
6: Who could imagine 7,000-foot-tall mountains and being in snow in June or July? or? you know, the strange rocks that you would see of of verdant, vibrant colors in different mining areas. It's very unlike anything in the eastern United States.
3: But it wasn't just California. It was all the stops along the way, the 3,000-mile breadth of the country. With the tracks laid east to west, along the route, noon was different in New York than it was in Sacramento. Trains had to stay on schedule. Schedules had to stay in sync. Robert Hudson described the railroad solution one we all use to this day, time zones. Time zones comes from the railroad.
0: You know, we we get time zones because they had to be on the same time when they got to the next town. They couldn't, you know, say like, uh, oh yeah, sorry, noon is different here. (laughs) 15 minutes different or something. That didn't work for them. So they had to find a way to like have everybody be on the same time zone.
3: I mean, time zones, they're such a given in life. I never thought that someone or some business invented them.
5: You know, It's hard to believe that there was a time when people would just look up and be like, well, the sun's in the middle of the sky, so it's noon. It had to be right, otherwise there was no way to communicate. If the train was five minutes behind, then they'd be crashing into another train.
3: The railroads accomplish a huge feat, synchronizing the world's measurement of time from one zone to the next. So if you're ever curious why New York is three hours ahead of California, the answer is railroads. Some historians say the railroads invented modern life, and that modernity begins after a country builds its first railroad. So many things developed by railroads hundreds of years ago are still part of our everyday lives. Railroads gave us cruise control and air brakes, even QR codes. The way they synchronized time even had a role in Einstein's theory of relativity. But Ruby was off the clock, out in the world, unconcerned by schedules. If I was right that she was train hopping somewhere, it was funny to me that young travelers were rejecting modern life by hopping on a train, the thing that created the world they were rejecting. Something primal drew people to the rails. Otherwise, they'd take one look at the train yard and come straight home. Had Ruby been through Roseville? Where had she gone? What had she seen? I still didn't know. But I knew it didn't really matter where she hopped out from. It was obvious that any train yard could kill you. Did Ruby know this when she left? Was that even a factor in her decision? Then again, maybe all of the reasons I was coming up with didn't matter to her. They were a mom's reasons, and the fact that I wanted to find a reason seemed like a very mom thing too. That explanation could be a lot simpler than that, if I was willing to let my mind go to the part of the past I didn't want to revisit. Ruby had been having a hard time before I moved us to Oakland, and we'd almost lost her then was running off to the rails Ruby's second attempt at suicide.
2: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of
3: So I, I'm gonna tell the truth about what came before she went to hop trains. When she was 14 years old, she tried to commit suicide. And I have a journal of that time. Oh God, they're heavy. Um, it says, Ruby trouble. Here it comes. 128, so January. Sitting in the St. John's emergency room looking at Ruby hooked up to IVs, oxygen. She's taken a drug overdose, a number of different drugs, the names of which are unfamiliar to people at the emergency room. This happened four years before Ruby ran away from graduation, and rereading it was almost more than I could bear. After Roseville, I recognized the despair in those pages. Happen. One passage struck me hard. I consulted a psychiatrist while Ruby was in the hospital. We spoke about moving forward from this tragedy. What would be the next steps for her? He told me she couldn't go back to high school. Every day, Vince really pulled the rug out from under me with this. He said that if I placed her back in Malibu, she would do this again, and reminded me that some years, the goal was just to keep her alive. That's it? Just keep her breathing? That was as much as we could hope for. Not dream of her using her gifts in art, her talent in music, to make a life that had meaning to her and brought something to the world. Considering the hopes I had for my daughter, this seemed so meager, so basic. Reading this, I still feel the anguish that this was the goal again. Some mother I turned out to be. Sitting on the floor of my office with my journal scattered around me, the person I wanted to talk to was J.P. Wright. Since that first phone call, we'd talked a lot about how much the rails could take from you physically and emotionally. J.P. was a railroad engineer with the soul of a hobo. I first found him through his songs that spoke to modern-day hobo life.
5: Spent the night in a hobo green car Been a and I don't know how far
3: Something about J.P.'s music made me think he would understand. So I called him because I mean, it, it's so dangerous when you, we were talking about how the yard comes together, you know, and the silent uh, <clears throat> cars that are sliding off the hump. The question that was in my mind then, which I sort of suppressed, was, was this jump into the rails an attempt to commit suicide again? The second attempt. Uh, I mean, do you think that is an overreaction on my part?
5: Most of the people that I've met that have been hardcore travelers. Like, they know that they're going to this place. It's almost like the shadows within the shadows. So, you know, it's like, I'm I'm so desperate uh, to be gone, that I'm gonna go somewhere where I know that I will be almost invisible to all of society. Nobody is gonna care that I'm out here. It is the darkness. You're going head first into the darkness And you're kind of just leaving the whole thing up to faith. If you really just want to kill yourself, then that's a good place to go if you don't want to actually do it. I mean, in the context of the mythical idea of the hero's journey, that's you're standing at the edge of the cliff. I'm taking the risk. I'm throwing all my cards on the table, and I'm leaving, and I'm gone. Fuck it. So, I mean, I could see that, yeah, maybe. Leaving nothing as my trade. Lonely sorrow's the story I tell And I'm gone. Lord, I'm gone. Lord, I'm gone.
3: Was J.P. right that walking into the rail yard was walking headfirst into the darkness? I'd been on the edge of the darkness, but I wanted to find someone to take me in. I knew that wasn't going to be easy. The railroads will arrest you for trespassing if they catch you. And if you get someone to bring you inside, that person will get fired. They could get fired for even talking to me. The only reason J.P. and Robert Hudson were willing to go on the record is because they don't work for the railroad anymore. But hell, I'll call anybody, and the person I wanted to talk to was a conductor. Freight conductors are not like the ones you see on a passenger train, the guys who take your ticket. In the world of freight trains, the engineer drives the train and the conductor manages it, meaning he walks the length of the train to check that it's in order and guides it through the yard when it arrives. He knows the yard, knows how it moves and its rhythm, and he interacts with hobos all the time. If I could find a conductor willing to take me into the yard, I'd know a lot in just a few hours. I hunted down a copy of the Conductor's Union roster and called or emailed everyone on it, and then just sort of waited and waited and waited. I was amazed when Conductor Jonathan Esposito called me back.
7: I'm just curious. So you, you just found my name?
3: I called, I called several people. You're the only person that have called, has called me back.
7: Okay. All right.
3: Jonathan was wary at first, of course, because he could lose his job for talking to the media. And I wanted something even worse than that. I wanted him to take me trespassing to learn about life inside the yard. So I asked, and to my surprise, he said yes.
7: So what I will do is I'll take you to Roseville. And then I will take you out to either Westgate or Polk.
3: I don't. I don't want to make. I don't want to get you in trouble. But on the other hand, I really want to do
5: this. <laughs>
7: I mean, you know. No, I've already. I've already said I'm gonna. I, I don't
5: have a problem doing it.
3: I was so astonished by this. I called one of my railroad buddies, who also thought Jonathan was nuts.
5: Well, I don't care how many tours of duty he had in Iraq, and I don't care how big his balls are. They will fire his ass for behavior unbecoming an employee. It'll be very hard for him to beat it.
3: Even so, Jonathan kept his word. Hello! Hey! I met up with him in front of his house near Sacramento on a Sunday afternoon. I thought it would be just him and me, but he had a woman with him in his driveway. Hi, my girlfriend,
7: Amy. Hi, Amy. Hi. Hi. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to
3: meet you, Amy. Nice to meet you. She was part of the plan, too. The reason he was bringing his girlfriend Amy along was for our cover story, I'd sit in the front and Amy'd be in the back. If anyone stopped us, he'd say I was his girlfriend's mom he was showing around. Thanks, Jonathan. So when we get into the yard, do we go through a security gate? No. We just go through some kind of a gate where you have a pass? Not even a gate.
7: I will show you how easy it is to...
3: To get into the yard.
7: Yeah. Okay, well that's great.
3: We set off in Jonathan's SUV, out of the subdivision where he and Amy lived and down a big country road. We'd driven half an hour when Jonathan pulled into what appeared to be just another vacant lot—no signs announcing an entrance or warnings to stay away from railroad property. Amazing! But all of a sudden, we were inside the yard. Oh wow! Here we are. This is private 10. This is
7: the Pacific Railroad Roseville Yard.
3: Part of Jonathan's plan included bringing his railroad radio.
7: Oakland.
3: He was talking to me, but he had one ear open to hear if the railroad was on to us.
7: So there's only cabling, there's no actual drive
3: line. As we drove along, Jonathan pointed out the tracks that extend from the hump, each named for its destination.
7: This is the east end of the yard. Up that way is to Cape uh, Falls, Dunsmuir. Going that way is Sparks and the east.
3: The east means the Sierra Nevada mountain range. These trains climb up through remote wilderness, their own private slices of America. It's a view almost no one in America gets, but it comes with a cost. From what Jonathan described, it's far from idyllic.
7: I'm sure Pete is going to be upset with me when I say this. You don't stop to hit an animal. On the mountain, deer everywhere, deer everywhere. You just turn the lights out and you ring the bell and hopefully they get off the track. And nine times out of ten, they get off the track.
3: Jonathan know, had a passenger seat in the rail cab to all the destruction created by the train. The way the train plows through the world and no one better get in its way. He hasn't become hardened to that, even after a decade in this job.
7: I feel sorry for... possums. They literally follow the rail. And you, you basically end up chasing them down, and you're like, come on, man, just just get off. Get off with are their- Gotta stay on the rail. Gotta stay on the
3: rail. The sense of death is so present that it's on the mind of everyone who comes close to the trains. Jonathan even brought up suicide, a topic I wasn't going to mention.
7: So when you talk about someone who wants to commit suicide, they just stand there and they're looking at you. And you can tell they're trying to time it. To jump in front of you. And most often, they are successful. A few times, they're not successful.
3: The hobos and the railroad workers had something in common. They were outsiders who chose to live in a world defined by these behemoths, these huge beasts that shaped our country. And up against that power every day, death was always close at hand.
7: If the train's going less than 10 miles an hour, I'm going to hit you and I'm going to drag you underneath all those locomotives. And you will you will probably die, but you are going to feel most of it. Mm. So, I mean, suicide, I attempted it not in front of a train a long, long mm. time ago over a stupid thing. And I'm glad it didn't happen. I, I do understand that part. You get to that point where you're like, there's nothing left for me to do. But what they don't understand when they throw themselves in front of a train is that crew has to see that. They're going you're gonna feel it. You feel it.
3: I was thinking about the possums and I was thinking about Ruby when I realized I knew where we were. We were near the railroad offices where Robert Hudson and I stood overlooking the thickest part of the yard. Jonathan took us past a little park near the tracks where he knew hobos hid out waiting to hop a train.
6: This is
7: the creek. This is a place where they like to stay, you know. Cameras aren't going to see underneath here. Drones aren't going to see underneath here and you can quickly jump onto a train that's departing.
3: The park had a few trees, an old tanker car covered with graffiti, and some drainage ditches where it would be easy to hide. So Ruby would have launched from a place like this. I didn't see a hole in the fence. Maybe there was a tunnel. From there to the trains, what was it, 100 feet? It was hard for me to gauge the distance, but whatever it was, it was too far. There were trains moving constantly on the tracks, and at night, the yard is dark.
7: It's at nighttime. There's no lights in the receiving yard. There's no big bright light on the back end. It's me with a lantern.
3: Jonathan told me that when the engineer is shoving his train through the yard, going backwards to the hump, he doesn't have time to look for trespassers. Like
7: that. I'm not looking for, for a trespasser because my focus is on the rail in front of me. The person tries to crawl through in the 20th car of the train. I'm not going to see that. The engineer's not going to see it. And now this person is crossing through, and who knows what might
3: happen. It's pitch black, and Jonathan is focused on his job. He's not paying attention to anyone trying to cross the tracks. Chances are, they wouldn't see the train either, until it was too late. And while Jonathan understood getting to the point where there was nothing left to do, he didn't want to help anyone end their lives that way. But they might force him to. And that's why Jonathan told me he didn't like hobos.
7: They don't care about us. What I mean by us is they'll walk in front of our trains and not think anything of it. And they'll blindly climb through our train. And the next thing you know, they're hit by somebody.
3: Despite what he says, when he's in a position to help out travelers, he does. A yard worker warned Jonathan that there were a bunch of hobos on his train. So he went to take a look and brought them a case of water.
7: I said, look, I'm not going to get you in trouble. You just need to be quiet. Keep your head down. We're going to Roseville. I will let you off outside. Of the- I'm not going to let you off in the yard. I will stop short of the yard at Citrus Heights, and I will let you off there.
3: I was surprised at how moved I was by my time with Jonathan, not just being close up with the train, getting the feel of the yard, but his emotions and his integrity. Jonathan had seen the determination of the people in the yard who wanted to end it all. And most of the time, if you died there, no one would know if you'd decided to kill yourself or if you'd just left it all up to fate. The Ruby who ditched us at graduation, she wanted to live. She wanted a life that was fully under her control, where she didn't have to answer to me or to anyone. But there's a difference between a rebellious act and a reckless one. After my trip to Roseville, I wondered where Ruby was on that spectrum. I didn't know. I didn't know anything about her anymore, including where she was. I was in the kitchen stirring a big pot of soup, I'd not yet adjusted to cooking for one, when the phone rang. When I heard Ruby's voice, I went straight to the Ruby reporting station I'd made at my desk. She was in a van with a bunch of musicians traveling over the border from California to Oregon. One of her companions in the van knew of a place they could crash in the San Juan Islands, and that's where they were headed, to spend a week or more writing songs on the porch of this old house overlooking the water. I was jotting down notes frantically, trying to get as much information as I could about where she was and who she was with. I was so busy listening for clues, I didn't think to ask her why she'd left or what she'd been thinking. She said she was happy. Happier than she'd ever been, and she had no plans to come back. I shouldn't worry. She was with awesome people, and they were taking good care of each other. She had to get off the phone, though. I guess she'd said all she wanted to say, and she was in charge of our interactions now. But who was she with, and how could they take care of her and each other? Did any of them have money? Could these new friends keep her safe? Could they make her life worth living? And what was that life like, especially for a young woman? Next, I find people who tell me how to live life on the rails. I wanted to come out there and see you face to face because I always think it's better when you see people face to face. Oh, uh, You're going to see an old bat used to ride freight trains. I've seen a lot of old bats, but not too many women. Next episode, I meet train-riding legend C.C. Ryder, a woman who survived decades on the rails. And I track down present-day riders who can show me their world.
1: There's places on train tracks that you can't go on a regular road. You know, I I think back and I'm like, you can't, I'll never be able
5: to see this again. High adventure all the time. The grittiness and just living in the cracks.
3: She opened her mouth and I put my fist in her throat. And when I was done with her, I told her the only reason I whooped your ass is to save your life because you would not shut the fuck up. That's next week and coming up this season on City of the Rails.
5: And he pulls the trigger and it just goes click, click. And then he cocks it or gets it
3: right or whatever. And then it turned to blah, blah, blah.
7: In the crew change, if you read where you get off at that spot, it talks about a peanut man. And this was
5: the those little magical
7: thing.
2: New Orleans in the wintertime is the festival of dirty kids, the festival of traveler kids. Your daughter probably went back and forth on this bridge, and I, I know she didn't know about all this. There's no way. All the places that you come from, so divergent off of what you consider to be utopian life that you would rather exist on the fringes with, of society. A, yeah,
3: on the fringes of society, squatting, doing stuff like this.
6: It's kind of like walking into
5: another dimension, another world, every day was different and never knowing what that day was gonna bring, that taste, that feeling.
3: The Rails is hosted by me, Danelle Morton, and developed in partnership between Flip Turn Studios and iHeart Podcasts. At iHeart, our team is executive producer and showrunner Julian Weller, senior producer Abu Zafar, and producers Emily Marinoff, Sheena Ozaki, and Zoe Denkla, with production support from Marcy Depina. Original music every episode by Aaron Kaufman. Thanks to Scott Mashad at Flail Records for our theme music, Wayfaring Stranger, performed by his old hobo band Profane Sass. And thanks to JP Wright for the use of his song Hobo Life. Our executive producer at FlipTurn is Mark Healy, and at iHeart, thanks to Nikki Etor and Bethann Macaluso. We'll be back next week with lots of hobos, young and legendary, on City of the Rails.